these are actually really wonderful songs for what we're talking about in terms of the gospel because what happens when you hear good news? What happens when something comes to you, you hear it, maybe you've been afraid, maybe something's lost, that's found, maybe someone that you feel is in danger is out of danger, you know, and you're holding on to the fear and the, the, the anguish, and then you hear the good news, and what happens when you hear that good news? You, you let go of the fear. You let go of that anguish. You let go of those things that, that you hold on to. And, and they're wonderful songs because it's good news. And, and I know for, for some, maybe even in this room, you know, some of the songs here, Surrender, um, you know, talk about Surrender, about uh, Lay It All Down. You know, that may sound like, oh, well, that's, that's a bit too far. But here's the amazing news about the gospel that we've been talking about is when you understand it, it really isn't too far. In fact, it's the only response that really makes sense. And it doesn't mean we lay it down and, and we never do anything with it. We never do anything. We just sit around and, and uh, be couch potatoes. No, there, there's work to be done. There's life to be lived. But it's lived without the fear, without the anguish, with someone leading us into that good news, into the riches that God has for us. Over the last few weeks, we've been talking about that good news and Seeing the good news is the restoration. God's good news is the restoration of all things. Everything. Everything in creation and us as well. So it includes us, but it's bigger than us. It includes heaven, which is unseen. The realm that is unseen for us, but exists and is just as real as our life around us. And earth, the part with that we do see. And that Jesus is the key connecting point by which all things one day will be restored. Whether it's according to our plan or not, Jesus is the one that restores. He is the central aspect, the one part that the whole thing won't work without. He is that place, that part. And today's passage has a wonderful sequence, I think, that allows us to understand both more about Jesus as that key point of the good news, but also how that good news becomes our good news. You know, it's one thing to hear other people's good news. Maybe you've been around uh, different times when other people have received good news. And, and we can have all the way from a reaction of, well, isn't, that's nice. Good. I'm, I'm excited for you, to sometimes a reaction of jealousy. Well, that's great for you, but I haven't had that experience. I haven't gone on that trip. I haven't had that hope fulfilled. So it's one thing to hear good news. It's another thing for that good news to become my good news, our good news. And today's passage, although short, um, allows us to kind of see how that good news comes together to us and becomes not just good news out there, but good news in here, in our lives. The, the first part of this passage talks about when you heard the word of truth, which is the gospel of your salvation. The first place to start in all of these things with God is, is with the senses, what we hear, taste, feel, see. See, truth is more than just some kind of idea out there. It's not just, you know, something we can't connect to, but truth is, is real, tangible, touchable, feelable, seen. It's real. And therefore, the gospel, when it comes to us, comes first and foremost in a way that we can feel that truth. We can hear it. We can sense it. That truth is that Jesus is the one who restores all things. 
in everyone and in everything. That that hope, that peace, that restoration will be found in Him. And therefore, with the Gospel, the first step is always to hear. To hear the word of truth. The word that God is saying to us about Jesus and about that restoration. That's why Paul and others, uh, as you read the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts, you find them traveling all over the known world, announcing good news to, to places that have never heard it, talking to people they didn't know about the good news of Jesus Christ, and why they went to other cultures that hadn't heard, and why we also today go to cultures that haven't heard about the good news, but also cultures that have heard, but maybe have forgotten that it's good news. You know, we live in one of those cultures, don't we? It's not that people in Luxembourg haven't heard in some way, shape, or form that Jesus is good news. It's just that they've said, I don't think I believe that. Or it's a fairy tale. They, they no longer, they hear it, but they no longer hear it, if that makes sense. The difference between, you know, maybe uh, I'm watching TV and my wife is talking to me and I, I hear that she's there, but I don't hear what she's saying. Not that you women would ever have that problem with your husbands, but my wife does. But you can hear something without really hearing it. And that's what happens in a lot of places and a lot of cultures. And But Paul says this in, in Romans 10. He says, but how can they call upon him, Jesus, to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how can anyone go to tell them without being sent? That is why the scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet of the messengers who bring good news. The first place to start is to hear. For some of us, is to hear again that this is good news. That God loves and cares about this world and about us so much that He sent His Son and He paid an incredible price to restore what was rightfully His, but what was estranged from Him, pushed away from Him. The good news exists beyond us, but it also is something that we want to become ours, to embrace it. And a lot of people reject God for one of many very simple reasons. They've never really heard the good news about Him. They've heard about Him, but they've never heard it as good news. They've heard about it as a God who wants to control, or a God who says, this is the way it is, or a God who's always angry, or whatever. They've never heard about the loving good news of Jesus Christ. And certainly some others have heard and they're very skeptical. Some don't believe. Many around us have never really heard. And so the great thing is we can be those who, if we believe, can be those who share that wonderful news to help them see who Jesus is based on our experience and what God's Word says about Him. So the first thing that has to happen from this passage is that we have to hear the truth, that there really is good news out there from God to us, and it's Jesus who rescues. And, you know, you can be someone who is, quote-unquote, a Christian, or someone who's, quote-unquote, not a Christian, and still miss the fact that right now, where you're at, Jesus is good news to you now. In the struggles and the pains, in the fears and the hurts, that He's good news now. Not just somewhere out there, but now here in me. And that that good news, if never been received, can be received and embraced. 
So first we have to hear, but you know what? Hearing's not enough. Then this passage goes on and says this, as it talks about uh, these people. It, it says that they believed, having believed. And, and those are two words that change everything, doesn't it? You know, it's one thing to have heard, and, and you can hear, and you can be able to uh, hear it. You can understand it even. You could, you could do a seminar and explain it to other people. You could draw a diagram about it. You could do an illustration about the good news. But until you believe it yourself, it's of no real value to you. It can be wonderful. It can be true. It can be beautiful. But it no longer has power for you. The good news does not really become good news to us until we believe. We embrace it. And then it transforms. And then it frees. Then it restores and renews when we believe. That's what God does in our life. Believing makes all the difference. But believing what? I think what it means is that we believe that Jesus lived and died and rose again to bring creation and people back to God, back to life, back to the way things were intended to be, and even better. You don't, you don't have to know everything to believe. I remember the day that I would say I moved from knowing some of this truth to believing some of this truth. And if I remember that day, it was, um, I think it was 1981, 1982, at the River at Ohio University, after having heard this and really wrestling with God, uh, and actually having an argument. It was a one-way argument, by the way. But, um, and, I, and I did what basically was a surrender. Uh, but, you know, I, I remember in that moment that believing made a difference. There's so much. I have to tell you, there's so much when that happened and I became alive in, in faith because of faith, because of believing. There's so much I didn't understand. I mean, what I understood about Christianity, you, you could, you know, you could hold right here. <laughs> I understood so little, but you know what? It's not how much we understand that makes a difference. It's that we understand that God loves us, has given His Son, and offers to bring us back through Christ. And then you know what? The great thing is, is that the journey begins and we get an opportunity to learn again and again, more and more and more. And for some people... One of the big reasons they can't believe is because they haven't been able, they, they say, I don't know enough yet. And I have to say, if you're waiting to know enough to believe, you'll never know enough. You'll, you'll never have it all figured out. You'll never be able to make sense of all the different things. At some point, you're going to have to say, this is, I think this is true. And not just truth out there, but truth for me. And say, I accept it. I receive it. I want it. And then God gives it to us. You know, our believing is really the only barrier left. After the death, the life, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all the other barriers between God and us have been wiped away except for me. What I will. God's will is clear. God's desire is clear, is demonstrated. But what do we will? What do we want? God does not violate our will. And in the end, if we say, God, I really don't want you, then that is the life that we will have. Which sadly we often discover is really not much of a life at all. Because all the beautiful, wonderful, glorious, enriching 
things that allow us to flourish in life actually come from God and are not just in thin air, but they have a source. And that source is God himself. Believing makes all the difference. It's like in this room, we have all kinds of lights. Electricity, for the most part, right, is hooked up. There's a few places back here it's not hooked up. It's there. It's there. But until the switch is flipped, it's there, but we don't enjoy it. It's not operative for us. And believing, saying, I believe this with, my, with, with what I know and who I am, I trust that this is true. That surrender is what makes all the difference. The third thing this passage tells us is that when we do that, at that moment, we are sealed in the Holy Spirit. And this may sound like a strange, what in the world does it mean to be sealed in the Holy Spirit? Let me try to give you a brief kind of understanding of that. The idea in being sealed is to be reserved for a purpose. Is that when we believe, God gives us the Holy Spirit, puts the Holy Spirit in our life, and and it's kind of God's way of saying, you're reserved by me, for me, for a wonderful and beautiful purpose. The the passage goes on and, and talks about that when we believe the Spirit is given to us as God's down payment. I mean, if you think about what God has done, what He has invested in us, the life of Christ given for us to restore us and redeem us. And then He puts His Holy Spirit in us. Basically, it's His way of saying, you know what? You're mine, and I won't give up on you. I won't let you go. I have paid dearly for you. You have accepted my gift. And here's the deposit. And, uh, you know, it's one thing to, to lose a deposit of, you know, 100 euros. But a billion euros? <laughs> I'm going to redeem that. Because that's valuable to me. And that's what God does to us with the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit in our lives, as we embrace the gospel, as we embrace this good news, the Holy Spirit comes in. And it is a sign that God yes, has taken us into his family and that he will ultimately restore us and make his promises true for us. And, although not mentioned in this passage so much, but other places, is the power source by which we live. Is the way that the transformation happens in our life. Not because we decide just to be better people, but because God is at work in us, making us new and different. This is why even in the worst of times, we can believe that God has not abandoned us when we're in Christ because He has invested so much in us. We may think He's going to let go of us because we've done awful things or we've, we've hurt people or whatever or we've had moments of doubt, maybe even weeks, months, years of doubts. And this passage says, no. When we believe God has invested so much in us, He doesn't let us go even if we let Him go. The last thing that this passage talks about that I want to bring up to you is the idea of, and you may have caught it and you may have wondered, what is that? But both at the beginning in in verse 12, it says this, God's purpose was that we, the Jews, who were the first to trust in Christ, would bring praise and glory to God. And at the end of chapter uh, verse 14, he says this, He did this, He purchased us to be His own people, and He did this so that we would praise and glorify Him. It's an interesting kind of bookend to this passage. To praise and glory, to, to be the praise to the praise and glory of God. What does that mean? First, I think what it means is it's saying this, is that we who hear the truth 
and believe in the good news and are sealed in that good news in Christ have a new purpose. And that new purpose is the praise and glory of God in our lives and through how we do. To praise and to glorify God is, is the, has this idea of expanding God's reputation. Okay? In other words, what, I want to say this. What we do or don't do here on earth doesn't like make God better or, or, or worse. When we say, I'm going to glorify God, it doesn't mean that we add something to God so that He's better. What it means is God's reputation, as seen by other people around us, is enhanced because of the way we live, because of the life that we live, because of the choices we make. The reputation of God becomes more like the character of God. Does that make sense? God is perfect, holy, wonderful, beautiful, incredible. But, you know, if you went around and did a survey and say, describe God to me, those would not be <laughs> the phrases that many people would say. And this says basically that, that in, in believing in this truth and in believing and in being sealed, part of your and my calling, our goal, our job description is to live in such a way that the reputation of God by those around us becomes more and more like who He really is. This is a big challenge, isn't it? <laughs> you know? Because oftentimes the reputation of God is decreased because of us. Many people you talk to when you say, do you believe or why they don't believe, and one of the biggest reasons they'll give is other Christians or what they've seen in the church. But what we do and what we're called to do sometimes is a very different thing. And that calling is to, is to be for the praise and the glory of God. Let me give you a couple examples from, from church history and maybe some thoughts in terms of the, of the present. One of the ways the church has done this in church history in the first century, as in different places in the world, um, the value of, of women, of, of, a, of a, uh, a little girl as opposed to a little boy, was very different. A little boy... Uh, was a value to the home and was, was an honor. A little girl was just going to cost you a lot of money to raise and then to, to pass on. Now, I'm, I'm not saying this is, okay, what I think or what's right, but that was the thought in that culture. And so little girls were born, and in many families in, in the Roman world, they were put out, ex what they called exposed, to the, to the temperatures overnight to die because they were seen as a liability. And you know what the Christian church did? The Christian church looked at that and said, you know what? That's, that's someone that God made. The image of God is in that they have an incredible value because of what Christ has done for them. And so what they did is they would go out and they would take those babies and they would raise them as their own. And I don't know if you know what it's like to have quite a few kids in your home. I have four. They're teenagers now. They're expensive. Right, Sarah? Sarah's not so bad. Her brother is... No, no. But, you know... They, they, they cost, don't they? There, there's a, there is a cost when you have kids, not just in terms of finances, but in terms of emotion, in terms of time. Your life is not your own. So imagine you having two or three of your own and bringing two or three or four in to raise them. But you know what the people in that world said ultimately about those Christians? Wow. They really value life. You know? It made them wonder about their, why did they do this? And it becomes about their God. And it raised the reputation of their God in that culture. And people were drawn, especially women, were drawn to the church and heard the good news and embraced it. A couple of centuries later, there were quite a few different plagues in the Roman era. And what happened if you had a plague come to your city and people started dying, you know what you did? You left. 
You left grandma, you left grandma and grandpa, you left anybody who was sick, and you got out of there because that was the only way to save your life. But in many cities, you know what happened? The Christians, not all, but many of them stayed. And they cared for those that were dying. And many of them also caught the plague and died. But the people who lived, lived because the Christians, many Christians stayed and sacrificed their life. You know why they sacrificed their life? Because, you know what, the, the next life is going to be so much better. The, the, what I get, if I, if I, I mean, if I live, great. If I die, better. And they really thought that. They, and they thought it so much that they lived it out. And, and you know when the people came back and their loved ones were there and they were cared for by these Christians, you know what happened? The reputation of God grew greatly. And people started to say, tell me about this good news. Tell me about this God. And they were able to share the good news. Not as truth, but as something to be embraced. And T. Wright in the book that, that, we, uh, that some of us read last week and some of us bought the book, and maybe we'll read it someday, um, through talks now about their community is one of the things that they're working on and they believe that God is calling them to do is about global debt. Is that in many places in the world, the rich companies... Um, indebted a lot of other countries, uh, and it was to our benefit because we sold that we, we loaned them money to sell them our goods to enhance our economies, and ultimately, there's no way in this world that they can get out from under that debt. And so, their churches are at the forefront of saying debt relief for these countries is is really is really important. Now, whether you agree, and it's not just a simple thing; it's very it's fairly complex, but it's not unimportant to these people. You know, but if that happens, and if we do that, because why? Because these people are valuable to God. Then you know what? People in many of those countries will say, "Who is this God? What is His good news that He forgives? That these people forgive our debts? And isn't that a wonderful reflection of the God who forgives our debts as well?" There's a lots of different ways we can do this, but you know what? Praise to be to the praise of His glory is not just about singing a song on Sunday, as wonderful as that is. It's about the way we live in light of this reality, this experience of God. Here's the question that this raises in our lives. Is as I do what I do, what does God get out of it? You know, I have to tell you, I usually have one question. uh, What does Paul get out of it? Sometimes I have another question. Sometimes. What does my family get out of it? But, But so rarely do we ask the question that we as Christians are called to ask. What does God get out of my marriage? Of my work? Of my leisure time? You know, if you're not a Christian and you hear those words, you think, well, what what demand does he, why should he get anything out of me? But if you're a Christian, and if you have received the gospel, and if you understand it, and this, although may be a hard question to listen to, is not a strange question because God has given so much. And the beautiful thing is He surrounds us with the riches of Christ and says, I have a wonderful future for you. I want you to be a part of it. But our lives start to be thinking now about the good news and what does God get out of me in my life and what I do. One of the ways this plays out and it goes on in the next chapter, uh, the next section uh, that we didn't read today and that we're not going to do, but I, I want to mention because it, I got uh, challenged very much by it last week when I was preparing. 
um, is one of the ways this lived out is, is how we pray, which may be kind of surprising. How does for the praise of His glory live out? And, and I think one of the ways that it lives out in Paul's life and he's modeling for these Ephesians, but also for us, is through prayer. And he prayed. And that prayer, if you read it, and I'm just going to break it down for you briefly, is, is his prayer for the, these Ephesians was this. Is that when I think about you and your love for God and, and your, your love for the, for the other believers, you know what, I thank God for you all the time. And, and I know, for you, I don't know what that's like, but for me, that was really convicting. Because do I really thank God for people? You know, the people who bring problems, <laughs> as well as the people who bring wonderful things. Do I really look at someone and say, made in the image of God, incredible value, broken, yes, but I can say, I give thanks to God for you. Paul could, and it was his way of living out what does God get from my life? God gets from my life thanking Him for people. Because you know what? When I'm thankful for people, I operate completely differently than when I'm not. And my guess is, you're not all that different than me. So learning to look at people and say, I thank God for you. And that when I think about you, one of the first things I choose to do, I hope you got that choose word, because it's really important, is to give thanks. It doesn't mean the other stuff isn't there. Because <laughs> it is. But thanks is so important. The other thing that he the other things that he said is he, he prayed for them that, that they would know and they would grow in their knowledge of God. He he prayed that they would know who God was, that the eyes would be open to the riches, the beauty, that they would really, really know God, not just superficially, but really know. He prayed that they might grasp the incredible hope that they have and the inheritance that God has for them in Christ. You know, there, there are many people in this world that not only long for it, but fight over the coming inheritance. But you know what? You and I don't have to fight over our inheritance. And it's there for us. And that's our hope. We have incredible hope. And you know what? Hopes get hope gets you through the hardest times, and when you lose hope, you can't move forward. But Paul says, I'm praying for you that you'll really have that hope, so that no matter what comes, no matter how hard it gets, you can move forward. And lastly, that they might realize the power available to them as believers of the gospel. You know, oftentimes in our lives, we say, I just can't. I can't do it. And I think Paul would say to us and to the, this church, I understand that feeling, but let me tell you about the power of the gospel. Let me tell you about the power that raised a dead person, Jesus, and brought him to life again. Now that's power. And that same power, it's there for you. You know, I think the reason Paul prayed for these things is, you know what? We don't believe him. <laughs> We're challenged to believe them. I think the reason he prayed is because he, he says, you know what, when you start to really see God this way and to know that there's incredible hope and to realize that whatever circumstance you get into, God's power is greater than the difficulty and the problems and the barriers, then you can move through them, even if it takes a long time. And when you do, it will make a huge difference. So as I've thought about you and the congregation and different people, I've tried now 
to a little bit incorporate this, giving thanks for the people before I get into the problems that, that I face or that, that I face because of um, different situations. Um, to, to pray that you'll really know Christ and God. It'll be real. Not just truth out there, but truth that touches you. That you'll have hope. And, and a sense of that inheritance that's coming so you feel rich because you are rich. And that you'll know that there's power. Power to do what you need to do. So that when you ask the question, what does God get out of it? And God says, well, if we do it this way, I, this is what I get out of it. And we go, I can't do that. We go, he goes, with my power, you can. Don't be afraid. But follow me. As we come to communion today, where are you at? The great thing about this table is as we come, it always gives us a chance to ask that simple question, where am I at? Have you heard but not believed? God invites you today now to believe, to say, yes, this is true. Jesus is the good news, not just out there, but for me, and say, I want that. And that may mean there's a lot of questions as you say that I, I, want to, I want to do that, that I need to ask, and then talk to someone, talk to me. It may be that um, today is that time, as we have communion, that you say, I believe. And then if that's the case, if you believe, come, partake. Because Jesus invites us to that. Have you believed? And have you been sealed? Then God invites you to this table to remember His covenant with you. He has an agreement with you. He has given so much for you, He will not let you go. His grace is enough. And He has called you to a life of giving glory to Him, which is actually the best life possible. Jesus is the good news. And at this table, we celebrate Him for the glory and praise of God. And Jesus leads us into that good news, a life surrounded by the riches of God, living for His glory, which is our greatest good and the greatest good of all creation. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Father, in, in so many ways it's so simple to see the truth, to believe the truth, and then to live into that reality that life is for the praise of your glory. But in reality, we struggle with it. We wrestle with whether it's true. We believe, but often uh, have doubts, which is natural, but very challenging for us. And oftentimes, we never get to the point of asking, what do you get out of our lives, our relationships? So, Father, lead us as we come to the table to take that next step. To surrender as the songs called us to do, to embrace you and to trust that you will lead us. As we sang in the song, Come, Lord Jesus, meet us at your table. Thank you that you invite us to come. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.